Very good. Um, we have over, I think, maybe every single Twin Lakes Fellowship you've been here, is that right? Uh, twice I was on sabbatical in Scotland, but all, all but well, those since two. Well, in Scotland, that's, that's entirely there possible. You go. <laughs> um, uh, but Dr. Kelly has really been the, the father figure at the Twin Lakes Fellowship for every year, and his presence has been invaluable. His ministry to us has been uh, blessed of the Lord. He has taught many of the men in this room as a professor. Some of you at the Jackson campus of RTS, others of you in Charlotte. He's taught all of us here at Twin Lakes and in other uh, venues. He is uh, much loved as an elder brother and father in the Lord. One of the things that we want to do at the Twin Lakes Fellowship is to, is to ensure that we have before us uh, models of ministry and uh, of men who have lived faithfully and gone hard after obedience to Christ over many years. Uh, there's, there are a few things more encouraging than seeing a, a brother in the Lord who is seeking to run his race with perseverance and cross the finish line with his eyes fixed on Christ and, uh, and do so with joy and obedience to the Master. And uh, Dr. Kelly is one of those that... Uh, I thought it would be helpful for me just to ask him some questions and sort of to try and cue him up and lob some softballs in his direction and uh, watch him uh, knock them out of the park for us. So perhaps you would, <laughs> perhaps you, so no pressure. Uh, perhaps you would tell us, uh, just start, tell us where you were born, when you were born. Let me start by saying <clears throat> this may not be edifying, but it will be honest. <laughs> We've come to expect nothing less. <laughs> I was born in Lumberton, North Carolina. That's uh, Eastern Carolina. To possibly to your pleasure, that's heavily settled with Scottish Highlanders and strongly Presbyterian. So, uh, Lumberton, the county seat of Robson County, is where I was born. Yeah. Okay. Uh, were you brought up in a Christian home? Very much so. I was brought up in a Christian home. I was with my parents, grandmother and others, in the winter school time. And from age five, I was on the family plantation in Moore County, Southern Pines, Carthage area, which is where I live now with my great aunt and uncle and unmarried aunt and the workers on the plantation. And they were very Christian. So I was brought up in an atmosphere of belief and the reality of the Lord and piety and taking the church three times a week. And I actually wanted to go. So I uh, just thank the Lord for such a, such a wonderful mm. atmosphere. And do you remember when you were brought to know the Lord? Or as is the testimony of many covenant children, mm. they'll say wonderfully that there was never a moment when they mm. were conscious of not knowing Mm -hmm. uh, the Lord Jesus. No, I couldn't possibly remember. The earliest I can remember, the Lord was present. I had a sense of the grace of Christ and, and that Jesus was near. Um, and my memory, my mother had a very early memory, and I have an early memory. I would say, remember a few things, not much at three, and four or five things I checked with my parents, and they were corrected about two and a half but I do remember 
uh, not only were the family believers, but the the nanny who looked after me and the other servants were all Christian. And uh, my nanny had been born at the end of slavery time. She, uh, I don't know that she could actually write, but she could read. She knew her Bible. And I remember her, Aunt Jenny, uh, taking me up on her lap and said, well, now, Douglas, in, in the Bible, she could read a little bit and show me some pictures. I remember one uh, contrasting Jesus and Judas and said, Jesus is beautiful and good and Judas is bad and he betrayed him. And I'd maybe three or four or so. The, um, even, even among the servants, there, there was a, a vital piety that influenced me at a deep level. And then in the summers, I was on the family place in Moore County my father's mother's people from originally Argyle, the Blues, and the um, one of the tenants was black man, Doss Carmichael, Uncle Doss, and he and I worked in the fields together a lot, and we would sing Indians like 11, 12, 13, and he definitely felt that I was called into the ministry. And we talked about those things. So I would say in the providence of God, he put around me not only a believing family, but, but the servants of the family and the, those who lived on the place and worked. It just made me know the reality of the Lord and felt I had been called to the ministry. So I have felt like to have such a beginning and such a context, I couldn't ever pay the Lord back for it or do enough to praising yeah so so early on you felt you began to discern a call to the ministry how yeah. did you how did you pursue that call well i i couldn't say exactly when i would say by five or six i felt called to the ministry <laughs> and i was um for some way uh, some some in our family are an inclination to languages. I mean, I can't count or, or do checkbooks very well, but uh, languages came reasonably easy. And so I was uh, trying to study languages when I was young and uh, buying books and learning vocabulary because I felt that that would be part of serving God to know these other languages. And my grandmother was teaching me Latin and uh, French was spoken in the home and some Gallic uh, by the older members of the family. So I think getting hold of languages, grammar, syntax, and that kind of thing, and reading. Of course, I was in church three times a week and felt that, you know, God was speaking and that I was confirmed that that's what he'd have me to do. So let's, let's fast forward a little then to your uh, beginning of training for gospel ministry. Mm. Uh, before we do that, actually, let, are, were there particular men around you, ministers, elders, others that were important in your spiritual formation? I would say I had a, a good pastor in the winter in Lumberton, Dr. Robert F. Sloop. His brother was a longtime missionary in Brazil, and he was a fine man, expository preacher, man of prayer. And then in the summers, 
Reverend Grover Curry, who was a distant cousin. It's a fine expository preacher and godly man visited in the home a lot because we were a related family. They're not, you know, like third cousin. But um, And then I had a great uncle, Uncle Dan Graham, who was very fervent. I mean, he was a timber man, and very successful, but very fervent evangelical. Talked to me about the Lord. I mean, my father was a believer. I wouldn't say he had the anything like the spirituality of Uncle Dan and some of my other great uncles. And uh, but yes, I was surrounded by good ministers and some men in the family that I identified with. Yeah. So where, where did you go to seminary? Tell us about your seminary experience. Uh, give us a picture of, of those days, yeah. what seminary was like generally, what it was like for you in particular. I would say looking back in my life, I had a wonderful time at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And the years I look back on with the least pleasure was at Union Theological Seminary, Richmond, Virginia. We were PCUS, Southern Presbyterian, which was then uh, being taken by the liberals. And I understood. This is around what time? I went to seminary. I finished Chapel Hill. Well, I was actually in France that year in 65. and went to seminary between 65 and 68. And there were, you know, it wasn't, there were no believers on the faculty. But it was going in a more liberal direction. And um, I, under, you know, understood enough to know what was happening. And so I, I fought hand, tooth, and nail. Um... And I would say those, I learned a lot. And I'm not saying that they didn't help me academically. I think the advantage of having taught all these years was I had to hear it from liberals. And Dr. John Reed Miller, pastor First Presbyterian in Jackson, and I were friends. And he would tell me things to read. Read Warfield, read Packer, read this, read that. Um, and I would get that. So I had to do double study. I had to learn the liberal stuff because I fairly well knew I'd do postgraduate study so I had to make good grades but I put it in such a way it didn't indicate I believed it and then I had to have the answers so uh, I, I did double reading so I sometimes said to the student and students in my years of teaching the fact that I'm teaching you conservative evangelical theology is not that I don't know what the liberal position is. I know what it is. I was taught by them. I rejected it. Then I do reject it now. And if you want to know more about it, I'll talk to you. So I suppose having going to a mixed place, it was going pretty heavily liberal. Union of Richmond was... Um, I wouldn't recommend it to others. I wouldn't if any of my sons wanted to do it. I'd tell them no. But that's the way I went. And I would like to have done something different. My first year Reformed Seminary hadn't been started. It was started in the summer of 66. And actually I worked for Dr. Miller at First Pres Jackson that summer. And I remember he's taking me out to the campus. They were cataloging books and getting ready to start in the autumn. I mentioned it to my parents and aunts and uncles. We did everything by family. And they said, no, you've got to go to the, to the mainstream 
Um, and Daddy said, well, like, you know, your cousins were there in the 1890s. I said, yeah, but that was in the time of Dabney. It was a different place. No, you've got to go. So I, I did obey my parents and stayed, went back to Union for the rest of it. But I would say I've had a happy life, and I loved the years in Edinburgh and then in the ministry. But those years in Richmond from 65 to 68 were the most challenging where I had to do the most fighting. So how did you keep your soul in the midst of that difficult mm -hmm. theological context? Well, I um, had been given in the, in 1966 by a Lumbee Indian, a Plymouth Brethren man, a very godly man, one of the best preachers ever heard. Reverend Venus Brooks gave me a Bible reading plan that he said he got somewhere from the Puritans. You read three chapters a day and five on the Sabbath. That gets you through the Bible in exactly 365 days, once a year. And I won't give you the system. It's in that book, If God Already Knows Why I Pray. There's an appendix on Bible reading program. But on Monday, it's Genesis and Tuesday, Joshua, et cetera, et cetera. And then Sabbath is the Psalms and wisdom literature. So you're... You see it in First Peter. Oh, I saw this in the Psalms and so forth. It begins to feed in. So I did that from 1966, which was that 51 years, every day. And then I got a, a plan for prayer. I mean, I was praying, but I got a plan for prayer about 1974 that divide. Well, they divided an hour into... 12 parts. I thought that was too much, but I cut it down to eight. And that's also in that little book. And so every day, as the most important thing I do, I have read three chapters of scripture, except from Sabbath five, and then gone through the prayer list. And I mean, I've got it with me. It's that thick. And somebody said to me, one of my, the last one of my sons got married and Said, so, well, you're getting a new daughter-in-law. I said, yes, but well, that gives me more to pray for. Um, so, you know, the, 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 these things uh, I've tried to feel that the greatest contribution I can make, well, when I was a student and then later in preaching, was to be close to the Lord, to be reading his word, and to be going through the prayer list every day. And it grows and grows, and then sometimes things get answered, and I take it out and... Uh, there's room for more. And then I made it a principle to be in the house of the Lord three times a week. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, without fail. So you've got to drink at the fountain of living waters, eat of the living bread, and then you've got something to give. So after you graduated from Union, you went to Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. How long were you in Edinburgh? What were you doing there? I worked on a Ph.D. Uh, to my surprise, the St. Andrews Society of the state of New York gave me a southerner, um, a scholarship to study at Edinburgh. And I was working under T.F. Torrance, a great scholar. And there were two or three areas 
I did disagree with him. I do disagree with him. But so much he was right. And Ian Hamilton out there will tell you the same. Um, so I was there from 68 to 69, and then I had agreed to go to Rayford, North Carolina for an assistantship. So the university let me go for a year, and then I came back from 70 to 72 uh, and finished it in, in those years. And one of the m main things in Edinburgh, I carried on the scripture and the prayer. I was active in the university fellowship and the theological students fellowship. But uh, three times a week, uh, Reverend James Phillip of Holyrood Abbey. Well, actually, on generally on Wednesday night, I went to Free St. Columba, which is behind New College, for the prayer meeting. But uh, Holyrood Abbey had their prayer meeting on Saturday, about, I don't know, an hour and a half. And I went nearly every Saturday to the praying and then his preaching, expository preaching morning and evening. And then there was preaching at Free St. Columba, Reverend Donald Lamott, great man of God, on Wednesday night. So... Um, and his son, Derek, has followed him at Free St. Columba. So the being in the house of God and the fellowship with the Lord's people in the prayer meeting. And I had relatives in Scotland. One of them, most of them were in the Isle of Skye, but one of them, retired school teacher, retired minister's widow, was living in Edinburgh at that time. She later moved back to the Kelly home in Skye, but she fed me once or twice a week and very sweet fellowship. So I had family and I'd go spend vacations in Skye to be with them and they'd come down and see me. So now after you after your PhD did you go into the local church for mm -hmm. so you were ordained as a pastor in the Southern Presbyterian Church? That's right, that's right. Uh, so um, who taught you to preach? Well, as far as homiletics, I had a very good professor of homiletics, Dr. Ben Lacey Rose at Union Richmond, who was actually, some professors of homiletics can't preach. It's amazing how they got the job. Uh, but he, he could preach, and he, he, he believed the gospel. I mean, he wouldn't take as strong a stand as I would against it liberal trends in the church, though in his later life, when it was too late, he did take a stand, but he was an excellent preacher. He taught me, but I heard, I heard expository preaching from childhood, my own pastor, and um, Jim Phillip influenced me a lot, and I'd also hear Mr. Still uh, from Aberdeen and uh, others, Reverend Grover Curry, I can still remember sermons he preached when I say when I was 10 years old and I'm 73. Uh, I can recall things like that. So. It sounds almost as though you're saying that the main influences in shaping you as a preacher mm -hmm. were other preachers under whose ministry you regularly sat. Precisely. Is that, would you give that as, as counsel to men here as they seek to grow as preachers? I certainly would. I would say this, particularly if you're students, um, far from your being too busy to go to church, it's the most valuable use of your time 
read your Bible, be praying, and then be in church three times a week and sit under a good preacher. It'll do more for you than anything else. I mean, if you have professors of systematic theology, um, I hope they can help you in Old Testament, New Testament, that they probably will, but not up to the preachers you sit under. Okay, so after graduation, you went where for gospel ministry? You were ordained where? Rayford, North Carolina. That's okay. near my home, just 29 miles from my home town, Lumberton, and about 25 from the family plantations, the Blue and the Kelly up in Moore County. So I was related to a lot of the people. Mm. Was I, it an easy? Was it an easy? A process licensure and ordination for you. Yeah, a yeah. lot of men at that stage, with your convictions, had a very difficult time finding a call. They did, but I had so many relatives in the presbytery. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the the day of my examination in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I hadn't orchestrated this; it just happened. My father and uncles and first, second, third, and fourth cousins, I think there were 15 elders there that they knew not to mess with me. The, so you, you stacked the presbytery. With the Kelly clan stacked The Lord stacked it. Not advice you would give to anyone in the room. Unless you're kin to the right people, you can't do it. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So, tell us about ministry in those early days. Well, it was fine in Rayford. Um, you know, very evangelical, large church. It was a small town, 2,000 people, Rayford, and 800 active members of First Presbyterians, all Scottish. Um, and that was, they believed, that was easy. But it was a different situation when I finally finished the PhD and went to Dillon. That was a very mixed situation. I've got the, my successor, Matt Adams, who's in his 20s. I don't believe he got any of these books, but um, he's here for the first time. He, I was followed by John Bumgardner, who was there many, many years, and now Matt Adams and one of the elders, Dr. Michael Brown, medical doctor, is here. But that was a challenging situation. I had seen, let me make a contrast. I, I don't know, um, I hadn't talked to Ian Hamilton about this or any of the rest of you that were anywhere near my age in Scotland. There was, a, there was not a revival maybe not even a quickening, but there was a movement about 1970-71 in the um, IVFs in the Scottish universities. God was saving a lot of people. Um, I'm not calling it a revival, it wasn't, but there was a movement. And I was asked to speak as postgraduate student at different Scottish universities. And I almost never preached and they'd ask you to call it a preaching, preach an hour, and then stay and talk to the students as long as you have questions. So it often stayed two, three hours. And I almost never spoke in 70 or 71 when two or three people weren't converted. And I didn't give invitations. I just lifted up the Lord. And the people would be weeping, and they'd call you 
to the back to speak to them. Uh, so I can't explain that except the Holy Spirit. So I assumed that was, you know, that's how it was when I was in the Scottish universities. It would be like that in Dillon, South Carolina. Well, was I in for a shock? <laughs> And I had, not, I had not changed my theology. I was not engaged in any particular sin that I know of. And my life was the same. My beliefs were the same. And I had a beautiful Christian wife. But in Dillon, they were, they were trying to go back in a better direction. The pulpit committee was very evangelical. But there was a group in the church, First Presbyterian Church of Dillon, that were denominational liberals. They were a minority. The evangelicals were in the majority, but there was a small and powerful minority of out-and-out liberals that were horrified by my preaching the gospel and so forth. And um, I don't get too particular, but there was a person in the, had some administrative authority in the church that was, I think, a servant of Satan. Um, not, that, not, not to be too particular about it. No, uh, but that did all the damage she could. And um, so it was uh, very challenging but I, I carried on preaching three times. I told him I wouldn't come. We never discussed salary. That may have been a mistake, but I didn't. Um, but there would have to be Sunday evening service and Wednesday night prayer meeting for me to come. And they agreed to that. Doesn't mean they all came, but uh, they agreed to that. And I, so I was fighting the handful of intelligent, they were intelligent and I saw to it that I tried to maintain friendship. I visited everybody equally in the congregation including the liberals and that hated me. Um, but anyway I sometimes thought, well, I don't believe I should ever have come here. Nothing's happening whatsoever. It's deadhead. But what I didn't know was by the time I announced I was leaving, which is eight years later, um, to, you know, I had, had been called to RTS twice and just felt I couldn't leave Dillon because it wasn't ready. The liberals would take it back, but then I saw it was ready that I could go. Uh, people came by and spoke to me, and uh, I think approximately one, th let's say there were, when I went, 250 active members one-third of the congregation had been converted in those eight years. And I said, surely you were saved. No, we know whether we were saved or not. I said, what an illumination. No, we were converted, regenerated. So God was working, but the rascals wouldn't tell me. <laughs> and um, I felt nothing's happening. You know, in, in Scotland, I was seeing people saved right and left and I thought hey, tough nuts nothing but God was working God was working mm -hmm. 
So at, at that time in the wider church, there were the beginnings of major eruptions. Eventually, the the PCA left the Southern Church, and right. the Southern Church united mm -hmm. with the Northern Church. Yeah. Um, as you look back on those times, rather than taking us through that history, I wonder if there are lessons those of you who went through that process learned that you would like for the men in the church today to have a clear, firm grasp of? Well, let me just mention what comes to mind, and this is not thought out. I have felt we must always take a very firm stand on the solid truth of Scripture, which is one of the reasons I've spent so much of my life dealing with the doctrine of creation. Once you give up a clear, plain reading of the early chapters of Genesis and say, well, to make ourselves acceptable to the intellectual culture, we have to compromise with some form of evolution. You know, it'll be theistic evolution, of course. Um, then you have set a, a certain hermeneutic, a certain principle of interpretation that will go into other places. And you're always looking to the culture in your interpretation. No, be straight down the line from Genesis on through and take a firm stand. That doesn't mean that you have to be, say, in a presbytery or a general assembly nasty person. That's uncalled for or... Uh, you know, you, hatred of those that are mistaken, perhaps, or not well informed. But take a firm stand on Holy Scripture and on the uh, deity of Christ and on his glorious salvation and on, on basic piety. And I think never give up Sunday evening service, Wednesday night prayer meeting, um, and the Sabbath. So those are just things that come to mind. That might not be what you had in mind. My wife once said when I was here in Jackson, the students wanted me to give some extra time at the end of the semester on answer their questions on the end of time. And I said, Caroline, would you like to go? Because she's a, also a Bachelor of Divinity. She did and answered the questions. And going back in the car, she said, you know what? I said, I don't know. She said, you didn't answer the questions. You just told them what you thought. Um, and use the question as a jumping off place to tell them what you thought. And I just said, oh. You're, now, you're well known in this room mm -hmm. for your advocacy of evening worship mm -hmm. and the prayer meeting, which mm -hmm. you've just done. Um, I want to circle back and talk a little bit about, about seminary and, mm -hmm. um, and a little bit about your hopes for our church and for the churches today, what you think mm -hmm. our needs are, mm -hmm. what you're, what's informing your prayers for the denomination. Mm -hmm. Uh, what you hope to see in a new generation of leaders. So that's where we're going. But why is the prayer meeting so important? Give us just the, you know, the, the, the brief, this is the reason you must have a prayer meeting. Well, Psalm 27, seek ye my face. Our hearts reply, yea, Lord, thy face do we seek. 
And Jesus teaches, abide in me, bear much fruit. The whole thing is uh, union with Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and reigning with him in prayer. So the essence of the Christian life is being on our face before the Lord, living before God, so that whatever he does through us, it's he who does it. We're available. I remember one time going to a convention on starting Christian schools. This is when my own little boy, my oldest son, was maybe three, and we were living in Dillon, and I was concerned to start a Christian school, which that didn't happen for some years. But anyway, one of the speakers, and I'm sure he was some kind of a independent Baptist, but a good man said something that is stuck in my mind. And he was saying to teachers or to people who want to start a Christian school, let all your teaching be the outflow of a rich life hidden with Christ in God. So let all our pastor visitation, let all our preaching, any discipline, whatever we do, going down to the going down the street, see somebody in a, a shop or something. Let it be the outflow of a rich life hidden with Christ in God. And it has a supernatural power. I remember one time a CPA in Dylan saying to me, elder in the church, and this, sound, this sounds extremely self-serving, but I, just, I don't mean it that way. It's true of any, any man of God in here. He said, see you coming down the street of Dillon. I know that God is coming, and it's a, it's a comfort past words. So that shocked me, because I don't think when I come, God is coming. But I would say this. Every minister, even a strong elder, God is in you. God is with you. And you don't know the supernatural uh, influence that you're bearing when you go somewhere. Um, that, that, this also has a tell, should or shouldn't. I was in the hospital visiting very early. And uh, African-American nurse, like just a beautiful face, came up to me and I said, give me directions on. So she said, you're a preacher, aren't you? I said, well, yes, how'd you know? She said, well, you're, you're shining out. There's a shining. So I'm not aware of that. Uh, I, can, I can tell you my wife and children don't think that. <laughs> But it is nice to be told it sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, I, I just want to say it's ontological. You go and you're going in the Lord. And the Lord goes with you. And he, he is winning his battles. A lot of it, I mean, place for words. But even, even without words and just... Even though you're taking much action, you go in a place and the Lord's there. And it's the victory of Christ, one of the ways the, the world will be taken. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as we think about 
the church right now, the, mm -hmm. the Presbyterian Church in America, the, the Church of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. in our land. Uh, what are your, your great hopes for us? Where are you concerned? And uh, what can we as a group of men begin to be praying and working toward? I believe that we must always stick to the essentials, the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, Blessed Holy Spirit, vital local churches uh, where necessary testimony against very serious areas, eras. You don't have to deal with everything, fight every fight, but you've something that's important you have to stand. And particularly, we have to watch the evil of 18th century deism which is still influential in our intellectual culture in which God is considered to be very remote and nobody's doubting he exists and they, many people would sign on board with the Westminster Confession of Faith and I appreciate very much what Chad Van Dixhorn has done over these years. His scholarship's amazing. Uh, but uh, many will sign on board, yes, 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 and believe that God is remote and be, and, and, and be very hesitant for a prayer meeting or even, you know, laying on hand somebody anointing to heal. That's terrible. Or exercising a house with an evil spirit. How awful. Well, what do you think? Is the Bible true or not? And so therefore we live in the realm of the supernatural. That doesn't mean we become an idiot. And I heard uh, talk about an idiot when I was at Union Seminary. Somebody that was, it was in the charismatic movement was just going and somebody was telling me the car broke down and somebody said, well, let's lay hands on the hood. Uh, you nut. Uh, get, a, get a mechanic. So, I mean... No, but, but you've got to be spiritual where it's called for and particularly resist any uh, move to de-emphasize prayer, take out the prayer meeting, de-emphasize true spirituality, and do not let people say the deism. God is separate, so we've got to do it. We've got to be impressive. Forget that. Um, God will go with you. You're more impressive than you think. If, if it's his glory, you don't need it for your own glory. Um, and then I believe the, you know, ask for God to work, believe he'll work, be available, and fight deism, which means God's remote, God's distant. And then various eras of the age. Once a church gets any size, I mean the PCA is not very large, 350,000 that's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> but once you get any size there will be a natural tendency to want to please the culture, to want to follow the culture. I remember hearing something that Martin Luther King said many years ago that the church, instead of being the headlights, is the taillights. 
And so I think there's a tendency that that's, I don't know why there's this panic among many ministers, otherwise conservative and leaders, say even in the PCA, that we've got to be relevant to the culture. We've got to do more that will show we've taken on board their concerns. But if you are preaching three times a week, if you're praying, if you're doing uh, these things that God has said to do, uh, that makes its own relevance. That will reach out. People will be changed and shaped. And the more you try to get with the ideas of the age, some of them may be right. There may be areas that we need to reconsider where we were not just right. And I'm open to that anytime. But once you get too much onto that, you'll lose the basics. And then we'll go. I saw the PCUS Southern Presbyterian in my family came from Scotland and helped found. I saw it go liberal. And I don't I don't want to be in another church that goes off the rails. And I'm seventy three, so I'm not likely to live to see it, but the way things happen I might and I don't want to. So don't let it happen. How do we not let it happen? We have to pray, we have to stay, the, the things we say we believe, we have to be available to do them before the face of God. We have to confess our sins. One of my friends in Dillon often says, keep short accounts with God. He's taking it from A.W. Pink, from the Bible, keep short accounts with God. We have to confess, we have to be right with our wife, with our children, where we need to apologize, apologize, um, be right with God and then on that basis stand for him and be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and budge not an inch from what scripture teaches including Genesis all the way through don't budge an inch and uh, don't worry about what the public culture thinks of you. Be right with the Lord, a clear conscience, and God will give power to your testimony. That's what I'd say. Brothers, what time does this session end? What time is lunch? I don't have my book. 12 12 o'clock. That gives us a little time. Does anyone have any questions for Dr. Kelly? Yes, sir. With a big emphasis on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights are generally there's a method to it, but not necessarily a liturgy. For Sunday nights, what would be your view on a liturgy for Sunday nights? Equal to Sunday morning or somewhat more religious? Okay, I am... Uh, I'll just be honest with you. As I said, it won't be edifying, but to be honest. Um, I come... was brought up in a more Puritan Presbyterian background... A little bit like the Free Church of Scotland, not totally, but a very simple worship, um, opening psalm or hymn and um, prayer and scripture and sermon and probably an offering somewhere in there and so forth. And so in the morning uh, we did have... Uh, some not every Sunday, but sometimes the Apostles' Creed and or the Lord's Prayer, and that was about it. And in the evening, just the just a simple worship. And Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night, a psalm or hymn, um, and then a brief 
Bible study and then a good bit of prayer. And that's how we did it. Other questions? Yes, sir. Kevin. Uh, I may have missed the day at seminary when they coached us on exorcisms. What instruction would you give uh, if we find ourselves in a situation where there's a, a spiritual conflict and Okay. Yeah. I would make this prediction or this observation. It's not a prediction. I'm just not smart enough to predict, but observe. You'll see more need for exorcisms the more our southern culture is rejecting the gospel. It gives a vacuum for the evil one and his cohorts to come in now let me say this it's necessary to be very careful don't be credulous I'll give you an illustration somebody in South Carolina seven eight years ago said uh, an old person saw such and such don't you think we have an exorcism it wasn't a member of the Dillon Church but in another town and I said, well, let me ask some questions. I said, no, that, that's a person that's getting senile. It's not calling for an exorcism. So be, be, don't be credulous and too rapid to jump on. We must exercise this and, you know, look, look at the situation carefully. And then um, if you deem that some we need the expulsive power of the Holy Spirit in this thing you get some elders and ministers to come and uh, cast them out, resist the devil and they flee from you, say what do you do just read some scriptures that are relative to it and order them out and out they have to go yeah yes sir Dr. Kelly, as, as I mentioned to you yesterday, your son Patrick mm -hmm. is a great blessing to mm -hmm. my son, Joseph, as he is his Sunday school teacher mm -hmm. um, in New Haven, Connecticut. Now, you know this, but not everybody might know, but your son Patrick is a physician in New Haven uh, in the inner city with the poor, and he does missions work around the world in the summers, medical missions, um, and his the way he's been a blessing to my son in creating a community at the middle school, Sunday school class, my son is just so eager to grow in the faith and in large part because of your son. So the question is just simply, you know, just a few minutes, just a wisdom on how to raise godly children. I appreciate your remarks about Patrick, and I will say he, from an early age, has been on fire for the Lord and used to be when I remember when we lived in Bellhaven in Jackson, uh, I had a study. It was a guest bedroom, but a study downstairs. And Patrick would sometimes come and say, Daddy, let's pray a little. And I thought, well, this is going to be long because Patrick prayed a long time. And I thought it's a divine appointment. So I always welcomed him in and laid aside what I was doing to pray with him. Um, I don't know exactly what to say. Obviously... You take them to church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Excuse me for, it's a bow with one string, but I do like the string. 
<laughs> and um, you seek to have a, a good relationship with your wife, uh, keep that right. Although I don't know, I said to I said to my wife several months ago, I. I said, I believe we've had a good marriage, hadn't she? And she said, well, I don't know. <laughs> so, I've been thinking about that. <laughs> but anyway, I think ha have them in church and have some kind of family worship uh, each day and then catechize them. I would, particularly in the years we lived in Jackson, when we'd come back from morning worship at First Presbyterian, and those years Jim Baird was there, um, I knew that they would be hungry, and their mother was working to get the meal on the table. So I would give them chocolate for answering correctly certain questions in the shorter catechism. And believe it or not, uh, Daddy, let's do the catechism. <laughs> So I, I think, you know, you can use the human body in a, in a way that's good. So I think, I think um, you know, in church, some kind of family worship, catechizing, and, um, you know, you spend time with them, uh, hunt, I did more hunting than fishing, and different things, um, and the main thing was in our family is visiting relatives, elderly relatives, and so forth, and including graveyards. Uh, so the Lord, the Lord will, the Lord will be with you. And the main thing is praying, 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 praying. And they get grown and get out from under you. Never, never cuts down the amount of time you got to be praying for them. And then they start having these other children, grandchildren. You got to pray for them. And then you know getting married you got to pray for the in-laws is that any help yes, thank you so much. Uh -huh. uh, yes sir Neil I remember hearing you once from years ago saying you were preaching uh, and you felt almost no sense of the presence of God <clears throat> but at the end of the service the congregation had a diametrically opposite experience they really felt the presence mm -hmm. of God come down in thick measure an unusual measure and made comments on that. What advice would you give to preachers? In those moments we're preaching, we feel empty and we feel nothing happening, and the devil sitting on our shoulder telling us this isn't going very well, we know I know, and it's kind of difficult. What do you, what's your experience with those moments? How do you kind of battle through those moments in the sermon? Yes, that's right, Neil. I remember um, occasion or two I felt like. I'm dead here today as um, you know I'm I knew I'd been faithful to the text and it was pretty well organized and had some illustrations going through it but I didn't think anything was happening and after people were broken down weeping in a way that I was not emotionally moved in any way in that sermon I wasn't turned off by it I knew the truth was true but I felt no, and sometimes I preach and feel alive in my soul, but I felt nothing, and yet the Holy Ghost was working. 
uh, in, a, in a number of people. So I think you, you have prepared, you've prayed, you've got people praying for you, and then you get up and preach it. Uh, often you'll feel it, and sometimes you don't, and yet you go through, like the prayer list or like the Bible reading, you go through and do your duty, and, and the Holy Spirit is working. Let me add one thing. And this made me think about standing up and preaching. When I went and say, Rayford was easy, pleasant, happy. But when I went to Dillon, it was very challenging. Um, but I had a secret weapon that the liberals in Dillon didn't know about. It was a praying family some of them in North Carolina, and then I had an elderly cousin in the Isle of Skye, a minister's widow, and she came and visited us at age 83 and stayed a month or two, so she knew all about it. And she often had trouble sleeping at night, and she had the time set Sunday morning, Sunday night in Dillon, Wednesday night in Dillon. She was in the Isle of Skye. She'd be praying all through those services. And I had others. You know, I'd call, if I got in a pinch, I'd call William Still in Aberdeen and Jim Phillip in Edinburgh, and they'd get the Saturday night prayer meeting praying. But my cousin was praying me through those services, and I attribute much that happened, particularly the basically a third of the congregation, maybe a hundred people getting saved to those prayers. So I had a secret weapon that the enemy didn't know about. And I think do all you can to ask people to pray for you. And then ask them, are they praying? Then remind them to be praying. One more? Yes, sir, Dr. Thompson. Uh, Doug, uh, what impact... <clears throat> Uh, has your fellow elders, i.e. Uh, your sessions and your churches have had on your ministry, and what do you look to them for being fellow elders in the work of ministry? Well, I will say, let's go back to Dylan. If I hadn't had some strong elders like Dr. Michael Brown here, his father, Phil Brown, was a longtime elder on the pulpit committee that called me. If those elders hadn't stood with me in the, as it were, the local church politics, I couldn't have stayed. They, they carried the fight against the liberals. Um, so they were with me. They knew what to do. They did it. They were leadership kind of men. And um, I remember the head of the retired head of the South Carolina National Guard, General Hennigan, was one of those elders that people didn't easily mess with him. Um, and so, as far as my being able to make it in a divided situation, that was a difference to my making it. Um, and then, you know, advice on which way the church should go. We, we ran it in those years and the session, we generally did it by consensus. We almost never had a divided vote. If I deemed that there would be serious division, I'd pull it back till they would be 
convinced and I was listening to them carefully as to what uh, I mean I, I gave leadership what I thought was right and I'd have never budged on the things I told you but a lot of other stuff I couldn't know and uh, we really important things I go to their house and we had it we had it pretty well decided before the meeting in most cases and that's common sense does that answer you I don't I don't know Will if that's what you're asking yeah that, that's certainly part of it um, I guess I'm thinking in terms of how, how what do you expect as the first among equals in the session what do you expect out of your fellow elders in the ministry in that church I expect them to be at the services three times a week if they're physically able and I understand sometimes they might be gone at the count I know that but I expect them to be at the services and I expect them to go with me visiting or to visit themselves and to help people spiritually and I mean more than once I can look back at Dylan and think about a situation where an elder and a deacon called me to come to the hospital and there was a man he was actually related to my mother distant we I was never pastor of a church I wasn't related to about a third of the people in Rayford it was through my father and Dylan it's through my mother not that close like third and fourth cousin but anyway this man was a cousin and he was a brilliant businessman timber and construction but a terrible alcohol problem uh, but a most likable man anyway they an elder and a deacon asked me to come to the hospital uh, he had gotten saved I mean really did really turned his life around I mean he'd been sitting on him preaching and was loyal he was a conservative he just wasn't saved I'd rather deal with a unsaved conservative than an unsaved liberal but um, still and they you know so I had people officers that were able to lead people to Christ and then sometimes they'd call me in uh, to consolidate the work so that that's maybe that's answering it I don't know but I may have done what Caroline accused me of I don't know Good. Uh, we are at lunchtime Dr. Kelly would you pray for these men